Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is... Paul Gilliari. Paul, we've got a lovely show today. We have a very academic show today, my friend. I'm excited. It's in my wheelhouse. It is not in my wheelhouse, but I'm going to find my way <laughs> to that wheelhouse if I have to go to MapQuest. Run, little hamster, run. <laughs> um. What we're referring to is there was an article uh, this past week about um, where the about where the, again English not my native <laughs> tongue apparently um, where the guys discussed what their uh, favorite books are of all time and we're going to talk about what that says about them and their songwriting abilities. Um, there is though uh, another bit of news from a podcast by comedian Dean Del Rey. Uh, I'm sure some of you know him. He does a um, a rock and roll comedy jam thing every year, usually at the El Rey Theater or at the Avalon, I forget which. Um, and a lot of cool rock stars and comedians go up there and jam out. And it's actually really, really cool. I have not gone before, but everyone who has gone says it's amazing. And apparently he does a really good uh, Bon Scott impression. So that's really cool. And Bill Burr is awesome. Awesome often there as well and i love bill so one day i will go to that my point is that dean del rey has a podcast called let there be talk and stone gossard was on it and talked about singers so we'll discuss that in a minute plus of course our lyric and life cut of the week but first paul please grace us by rating reviewing and subscribing to this humble podcast it's like we wrote the rundown on a piece of paper (laughs) but we did not because that's how we roll. Yep. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Paul, let's talk about our friend Stone Gossard. And let's talk about what he had to say about Eddie and finding a singer when Mookie Blaylock was looking for a singer. Well, what's fascinating to me was, so you got this band, Mother Love Bone, and they're cruising. They're on the fast lane to what I think would have been a, a very successful career as kind of a, um, an offshoot of, of what the whole hair metal band era was. And sadly, Andy Wood passes away far too young. And they're looking for a new lead singer now. And Stone says, we only got four or five tapes, which, which to me is baffling. I mean, I, you look at some bands nowadays um, I remember when Fuel parted ways with Brett Scallions. I don't know how many tapes they got, but it was like, felt like a national audition. I mean, they just had it out there. Anybody under the sun could go STP out and record. had a national audition. I, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, so you think that they would have had four or five more than just the four or five. Uh, but, but Stone said they were all just bedroom tapes and none of them were really that compelling. And they didn't wait around. And I think what's interesting, though, is it was a life lesson for Stone because he said, and I quote here, that's the thing. That's the thing I think about a lot. If you're putting bands together, you're trying to do something with other people, you can spend so much time looking for the right perfect people. But usually those people are the one connection away. If you're waiting around for something too long, you're not doing it right. It's been the lesson in my life in terms of just the people that are around right now. There's someone right now that you know, or somebody that you can jump off a cliff with. And I remember we heard Eddie's voice, a completely different register than normal. And he obviously could sing. So the, the, the first thing that stood out to me was this life lesson of thinking that y- you need the perfect person, right? It's mm-hmm. gotta be the perfect this. It has to be the perfect that. And what we don't realize is sometimes the, it, it's about the synergy and the connection, and it's usually not that far away from you. And when you pass on that repeatedly in search of some nebulous perfection that A, doesn't exist, and B, you know, could be who knows how many degrees from Kevin Bacon away from you, <laughs> uh, what, do you what are you left with? You know, at what cost? And so I thought that was a really interesting life lesson. And well, it's to not know just, that. 
to know that so early on, I mean, they were still only like 24, 25 years old. I think old. it was more of an impulse then because they were just, they were so underwhelmed with those four or five tapes um, that they didn't want to wait around anymore. I think, you know, Stone's point was that that this this has happened to him multiple multiple times in his life, yeah. where he felt like he needed the perfect person for something, only to find out that that person was one connection away. But what fascinates me equally as much was Jack Iron's take on this, because Jack told Stone mm-hmm. about Eddie. He said he's a great guy, he's a good guy, he loves sports, and he's into songwriting, and he's motivated. And then Stone said that's all it took. We were jumping off cliffs right and left at that point. I mean. It, Think about that. Be a good person, relate with others in some capacity, and be and be motivated. And, and that's literally all it took. From, from that point on, like the guy's voice registered, and now the, the second test was, can we get along with you? You know, and and the trust is, um, I should say, the trust in the in those words coming from somebody that you know. From Jack, right. Somebody that, uh, exactly. That's, that's the key. Cause if it was just, you know, some guy off the street or a friend of a friend of a friend, it's like, well, I don't really know you, but like, okay. But Jack, they knew and like, Hmm, that's coming from Jack. Interesting. Yeah. But it's funny, those two ingredients, like being into something you're into in this case, it was sports and songwriting. So having some type of a connection and then the motivation factor. And I think about if you're hiring for a job or you're trying to find somebody to, you know, co-host a podcast with <laughs> are you looking or, uh, or no come on man. but the point is you want to feel like you have a connection with somebody but it it really the, what pushes it over the edge is when you see that other person is is equally motivated because if you feel like you're going to have to do all the work or you feel like that person regardless of talent i mean sure eddie's voice registered differently but if the guy wasn't motivated, how, how long would the band have survived? You know, I so think that was the key Paul is, is the word motivated because think about them going through or stone and Jeff at least going through two bands, not working out. They were, they were clearly trying to be a successful band. Yeah. Um, the irony in that getting Eddie pushed them into the stratosphere much quicker than they were ready for. Right. Uh, I, how are they not ready for that is actually another funny question. We could tackle another time, but like, yeah, with, with the, the, f- what what Andy Wood was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they knew they were going to some stratosphere, but then when it didn't happen, they they knew they were looking for somebody who was motivated to say, take a chance on Ed. Obviously they heard his voice and liked it, but like once that clicked in and the chemistry was there and the album took off, somehow they were taken aback by it. It's a very strange thing to think about, but to get to that point, you could you could easily connect the dots. Yeah. Without question. So those are the two things that stood out the most to me in that, that podcast interview. Well, um, that's a good little appetizer, Paul. Yeah. Because now we're going to wander into some territory that I don't know. Well, I don't know, first of all, if the, if the information has ever been uh, privy to others before this past week with these uh, favorite books. Maybe somebody knew this information, but we did not, as a, as a I think, a collective know this. And... I want to, uh, you know, we, we always kind of do listicles or we kind of, you know, broach songs from different angle and find out, well, which ones kind of speak to us in this capacity or in this column. Cause that's, that's, it's people like things in boxes. People like things compartmentalized and it's easy to do episodic shows like that. Sometimes we do shows though, that are a little more cerebral and this is one of those. So to talk about the band members, favorite books and what they mean to them and how they speak to the, the songwriting sensibilities of those people, I find incredibly interesting. So would you like to choose who we are going to talk about first? Sure. I can do that. Let's, uh, let's start with stone. Stone. That's a perfect segue. What a segue, Paul. Yeah. It's amazing. So, So stone's favorite book apparently is the, it's the novel mating by Norman Rush. So this was Norman Rush's debut album. Debut and, album. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. It was uh, an award-winning novel by Norman Rush. It won the 1991 National Book Award for Fiction. And so you think about the year 1991 mm-hmm. and what Stone was going through at that particular point in time. 
and then to read a novel like this. I don't know if he read this in 91 or if he read this many years later. That I do not know. But uh, if we if we draw the connection, the con- and this is purely conjecture on my part, clearly, because <laughs> how would I know? that Stone read this right around 1991, 1992, as he was undergoing what could be described as kind of like a a mating ritual in itself in terms of forming a new band and finding a new singer and so on. What I thought was was really fascinating about this novel is that when when you look at a novel like Mating, the protagonist of the book is is a little on the self-absorbed side. There's a narcissistic element to this particular character who is, uh, it, the book is first person narrative. It's about a, um, an anthropology graduate student from America who ventures out to Botswana around 1980. And the book centers around her relationship with this older man. And it, it, it's a really interesting foray into a variety of things that I think have shown up repeatedly in Pearl Jam's music. So, the book kind of touches on things like feminism. Um, it talks a lot about um, introspection, suffering, uh, elements of narcissism, which I which I've already mentioned. Obviously, uh, self consciousness. There's all these different types of things happening that I find have happened in Pearl Jam's songwriting process, and things that have happened in a lot of the music that Stone writes. Now, Stone doesn't do a lot of the lyrics, so it's not like we can make direct mm-hmm. parallels to, to the lyrical content of what it is that he does. But when you, when you look at some of the things that are happening in the book, some of the themes and some of the motifs, it's just a really interesting window into what Stone finds compelling. And I think that's going to be the case with, with all of these different novels that we're about to discuss. Um, regardless of, of the plot itself, I think it, what matters most is just looking at some of the, the bigger ideas. Uh, you, you, you have this woman who wants to have an affair, basically, with an older married man. But the, the, the man is this utopian activist. And when you think about some of the things that Pearl Jam has stood for in terms of being activists, and, and I would say championing championing uh, many utopian esque causes uh, i think that there's something attractive about that man to stone not in a sexual way but almost uh, on admiration level and there's something that just it spoke to him there and the the, the quirkiness of this woman's pursuit of this man i thought was just really unique and it, i think it it just brings a whole dynamic into the window that is what is what interests stone now the the tricky thing here is it's if if it was his favorite book in 1991 is it still and if not did it become his favorite book later on in life it just so happens coincidentally that it was published that's interesting Uh, because like you know this was a recent article so he must have been asked recently so for either it just became or it's been for 29 30 years and the you know searching for searching for love essentially and and, and having um being... feminism love politics race i mean this basically are signature tent poles yeah, of almost every pearl jam album there's a know? lot there uh, especially within the context of the first couple of albums a lot of things to choose from i think the idea of being sick of dealing with kind of people who aren't good enough and, and seeking out that utopian utopian love um, that, yeah. that that's equal to or worthy of her intellectual prowess, I think is interesting. Um, I wonder if if Stone thought that way about his contemporaries at the time. I wonder if he thought um, that's how he was going to pursue songwriting with other people. Um, did that affect how he thought about um, maybe subconsciously how he came about choosing, you know, Eddie Vedder as a singer, as we talked about. Um, looking for that perfect thing you know you can't it's always it's not necessarily always going to be there right in front of your face it might be the next connection over mm-hmm. so here apparently she's going out and kind of just with these random people who are not up to her snuff and then she finds the unicorn sort of thing and it's you know feminism has been has been a big part of them for a while but i think there's a, a lot of things there looking back on the first couple of albums especially that like oh oh wow yeah i can see where that's coming from yeah 
I feel as though this is the type of novel that gives us a very abstract window into some of the things that have informed Stone as a songwriter. Whereas if you look at a book like The Grapes of Wrath, which was Mike McCready's pick, Mm -hmm. I think there's a more of a direct parallel. And I say that because Mike picked The Grapes of Wrath, which is a canonical classic in American literature, the John Steinbeck novel. Now, I just want to want to share something. So <laughs> when I asked you about this mm-hmm. book, you know, you said you wanted to dig into this one a little bit. You said, All right, you know, the, the whole concept of this show, actually, you were slightly on the fence on a little bit. But when you, you looked into the grapes of wrath, <laughs> I'm going to quote you here. The story is stupid and pointless. <laughs> Family just keep moving, looking for work, and some shit happens. Some people die. Someone gives birth, and the new mother of the stillborn uses her breast milk to cure an ailing old man in a barn? Question <laughs> mark. So, I just didn't understand what the point of it was. What, no, what, okay, the story so doesn't to, end with a point. Well, okay, well, I think it's less about trying to tell a beginning, middle, and end that that um, that ha- has a, a, an arc. In, in the same way that it is about painting a portrait of the American farm worker, the migrant farm worker during the Great Depression. And I think that, that it was a book that was, it successfully raised awareness in ways that, in a lot of ways, it, it's, it's, it's one of those like grandfather books of activism in American society. When, when you start looking, and, and again, like, all of these band members are, are very, very avid and outspoken activists. Mm-hmm. So it's not a surprise that some of these books have rooted history in movements like this. But I think with a book like this one, when you, when you look at The Grapes of Wrath, it was, it, there was a little bit of controversy surrounding it because it was viewed by some as purely communist propaganda, um, which was unfortunate because it was really... I find that shine. weird. Well, it shined a light on labor practices Mm -hmm. at the time. And I, and I think that it, it was controversial in that respect. And so was this book book written? The grapes of wrath was published. I want to get the exact date. 1939, 39, 39. Now you would find it very strange to take a criticism of unbridled capitalism to be communistic, right? That wouldn't happen today. Would it? Well, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Touche. But communism, but, how dare you? For, for all I know, Mike sees a connection between one of the characters and an uncle or, or, or a parent. You know, See, it could be a far more. That's where I was going with this. I think it's more of a direct um, personal thing. It, it could be. And so to that point, when you think about what um, what the point is in, in terms of shining a light on the harshness of the Great Depression, um, kind of presenting it in a way that that elicits sympathy for what these Margaret migrant, pardon me, farm workers went through. I see Mike as someone who's overcome a lot of struggle in his life on a personal level. Uh, you know, the, the Great Depression is, is in many ways a macro to his micro depression at times, mm, you know, with yeah. his own battles with addiction. And I don't know. I, it, to me, it's just this this mirrored story of so much of the turmoil that Mike has undergone on a personal level. And I think to some degree, I mean, clearly this book speaks to him on a personal level. These are the, I would love to have conversations with, with each band member, literally just about these books. I think it would be such a compelling podcast to just have a conversation with them about nothing other than their connections to these books these, the, and, and how these books have informed them as people. What is it about these novels that registers with them and so on? Because clearly I'm reaching here at Straws but I'm, I'm exercising conjecture, but it's, it's not completely off base. I mean, I'm not just throwing spaghetti on the wall here. I, I, I feel like what we know of the band and the music that they create, you, you think of a song like you can, Inside Job yeah. and, and you, you start to make yeah. connections here. You know, it, it's easy to see how these things could be intertwined. Uh, obviously, we can't prove that they are, but it's still fun to talk about. There's, an, there's enough dots, though. And that's the thing. Like, for me with this, it was a search for usefulness and like utilitarian use. Yeah. And that's what this is my purpose. I mean, I, I, I was joking, not joking, but I was kind of like half joking when I was like, this book is stupid because it it didn't have a point beyond just kind of putting a snapshot of time where nothing actually really happens. It's just depressing, like failures after another, when people are searching for usefulness and 
you know, that's what the boil, the book boils down to for me, but to mean something to someone and in general to matter, to have a purpose, um, you know, you, you mentioned inside job and I wonder, you know, when like, like stone, when did Mike make this discovery of this book? Uh, was he searching at the time? And I can see that if it yeah. was before Oh six for sure, because how this all funnels into the lyrics of inside job makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah. I mean, look, th- this book, I can completely understand why many folks, especially in today's society would say the grapes of wrath is just a boring slog of a book. However, in a lot of ways, it's very raw. It's very real. It's extremely emotional and evocative. More importantly, there's a letter in 1939 that John Steinbeck wrote about this novel, that his goal was to rip a reader's nerves to rags. Hmm. If you asked Mike, you know, tell me what it's like to go through your addiction experience. I think he would say, well, it it feels like I'm being, my nerves are being ripped to rags. So I, I, I can see why somebody like Mike would be drawn to a novel that, that was designed to that effect. So I, 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 uh, I applaud him for, you know, I mean, a lot of folks, they might not want to, to have that type of experience in their literature. They might want literature to be something that's more of a distraction. And so I, I I think it's really fascinating. It's just an interesting, like with stone, it's an interesting window into the, um, the dichotomy of the band and, and how they interact with each other and who they are as individual people. I mean, I think you can, you can know a, a decent amount about a person by, when they say what their favorite book is, their favorite TV show, their favorite movie, they all kind of speak to those sensibilities. Um, and the more you know about the person, plus knowing that information, the more you can you can make um, a hypothesis about what that really means to them. So the fact that we have, I mean, they're public figures, and they express themselves in a uh, very raw way through their music, which some people can't be super raw just talking but they can do it through music and we have 30 years of that and you take all that and you apply what this book is about or what these books are about and you can probably stitch together some things and so i think for this one with mike he's kind of a hard on the sleeve kind of guy i think and it it when i talk about looking for usefulness and looking for a purpose he was looking for that when he found Pearl Jam. He was, mm-hmm. you know, he was delivering pizza, and yeah. they, you know, Jeff was like, "Yeah, I know this guy who plays guitar." And like, when, when they when they went big, who who were the two guys that were excited that they that they were finally finding use that people found them useful by loving their music? It was Dave and it was Mike. So you can see why he would be drawn to this. No question. Where are we going next? Let's 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 go. Let's march to the beat of a different okay. drum here. Let's, let's talk Matt Cameron here. All right, okay, sir. So, so Matt Cameron's favorite book is America by Franz Kafka. So it, going this route, I thought was fascinating. Um, it, this book by Kafka was never actually finished. It's, it's his first novel, but it's, it's technically regarded as incomplete. So he wrote it between 1911 and 1914. It wasn't published until after his death. So he died in 1924 and the novel was published in 1927. So I'm not going to get too deep into the uh, the plot, but basically it's about a 16-year-old European immigrant named Carl, and uh, he goes to New York to escape a scandal of seduction by a housemaid back where he's from. And it's this wild set of escapades that he experiences that ultimately leaves him... Uh, trying to like break out of what, which feels like various intermittent forms of imprisonment through circumstances that he just, you know, when, when you're hopeless and, and you, you're in a new place, sometimes you find yourself hanging out with the wrong crowd and then you, you, you end up in the wrong place at the wrong time and you're not really quite sure you do what you got to do. And suddenly you feel like you're either indebted or you feel like you, 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 you're literally locked up to a degree. And, uh, At some point, he sees an advertisement, this is towards the end of the novel, for the Nature Theater of Oklahoma, and they're they're looking to hire. So the theater tells anybody who's interested that you can find employment with us. So he applies for this job, 
and uh, he gets hired as a technical worker at the time. So he gets sent to Oklahoma on a train and then he gets off and he sees this vastness of the, the landscape, you know, this welcoming and which to me, I think is symbolic of the, 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 the wide open space that represents America and it being the land of opportunity. So there, there is a certain degree of ambiguity there, but there's also this open ended note of positive positivity at the same time. And so I, th I think when you. And by the way, Kafka loved reading the last chapter out loud. If there was something about it that he loved sharing with people. So when you, when you start thinking about the themes of the book, and it, there's an element of satirical humorism to it, but what, what I thought was really interesting was that there's this, um, th this protagonist, Carl, the main character, who's putting these really strange, bizarre, like quirky Wes Anderson-style filmmaking scenarios. And there's an element of oppressive, like this oppressive system, but it's not necessarily clearly defined or articulated. It's just a product of almost the choices that he makes. And he almost like allows certain things to happen to him. And I thought that was really fascinating because when you look at Matt, there's um, his role in the band and his relationship to members of this particular genre of music, whether it be Chris Cornell or Kim Thiel or, or really any members of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam or, and, and Alice in Chains and so on and so on. I've always found Matt to be this kind of like uh, enigma because he was almost exalted in a lot of ways. I mean, if you look at some of the liner notes in Lost Dogs, Eddie Vedder talks about how when Matt Cameron writes a song, it just humbles all of them. Which, which I thought was really interesting because it, I, I think, you know, if you look at Pearl Jam's greatest songs or most well-received songs over the last, basically since 1998, you know what I mean? I don't think Matt's songs necessarily register on iTunes' as most popular list, right? But at the same time, there's something about, the, about his songwriting and his contributions that the band feels are just beyond invaluable that he's like the linchpin that holds everything together in so many ways, which I thought was really, really interesting. And so when you think about Matt Cameron and his, his, his very unique drumming style as well, there is this really kind of like wandering um, uh, invitation into the bizarre that I find with his drumming sometimes. It's just as somebody who tries to keep up with it in my car on my steering wheel, <laughs> how difficult it can be. I don't know. I, I, I just thought it was a really interesting view into some of the things that Matt's interested in, both as a critic of American um, foreign policy. I mean, I, at some point in this novel, they show the Statue of Liber Liberty and she's holding a sword, which mm -hmm. you could make it is an argument of the the, the 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 way America yields its power and how it's, it's almost like, you know, might makes right type thing is something that I, I saw as a, a, a critical examination. I can't help but feel that there's something about this book that just speaks to Matt on a personal level in terms of kind of the wanderer within him, perhaps, but also something that speaks to him politically as well. So of all of them, this was the one that I was most intrigued by only because the pieces are far more ambiguous and it's a lot harder to, to, to kind of connect these types of dots. So I would love to kind of ask him, what is it about this novel that speaks to you so much? And I think of all of them that this is the one that, that has probably that bizarre nuance to it that speaks mm. to Matt that you, unless he told you, you'd never know. Well, the, the funny thing about Kafka is that, you know, he's known for a recurring theme of helplessness. Yeah. His, his protagonists are usually confident, energetic men. Um, they become locked in a, in a contest with a power that they cannot overcome and eventually subside to. Which is exactly what happens here. So my, my question is why would Matt feel this way? Has it something to do? I mean, this is the, he, I would assume he would have chosen this well before Chris's death. And I would imagine so. Yeah. But was it, was it maybe during the mid nineties when maybe Soundgarden was kind of drifting and he didn't know where, where he belonged. I mean, can we surmise anything from the lyrics in you are or get right or in the moonlight? I mean, 
it's it, it you're right it's very there's a lot of layers here i'm trying this is the hardest one for me to kind of dive into and understand what the connection is um maybe just drummers are very uh uh what's what i'm looking for they're just nuanced people and your point about about ed saying that when mac gets his hands on a song it becomes another thing it's like i wonder if i wonder if just something there is about matt that he he's kind of always looking beyond looking to the next thing how do i make this thing better than what it was i mean the character in this in this um in this novel uh is constantly on the move right yes constantly um and i think it's it's by necessity which if, if, if let's just talk about matt's journey for a second okay right. so well, that's where matt, i was going with this he's born in, in san diego right we just talked about bam bam matt's first professional job as a drummer was actually for bam bam <laughs> the, the the tina bell outfit and, and if you if you look at matt's history he was a teenager like 13 and he and some buddies were in this cover band called kiss but apparently <laughs> yeah. it was uh i guess the word imitation was written underneath the name uh, but the obviously kiss management found out and they threatened the kids with, with legal action at the time <laughs> if they you know, so that fizzled away but uh you know you look at all the different outfits band, um, and bands that matt part i was about to say jack i was thinking jack irons there for a second that matt has been a member of yeah and this this constant like movement this constant uh, and, and there, there, there are all these out there's so, there's uh, an element of the bizarre to it when you think about it. When you think he, he was in 1978 under the pseudonym Fu Cameron, he, he he sang a song that was actually showed up in Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Really? Yeah, it was, uh, the nickname Fu came from his older brother Pete, who pronounced him as Mafu instead of Matthew. Ah. So, <laughs> I mean, there's all these little, little interesting tidbits about him as a musician and the little things that he experienced until he finally found work with Soundgarden. Um, okay. And well, it was he did, just, he did, he did the demos for Pearl Jam's 10. Yeah, he did. Exactly. So, you know what I mean? And so I just, I just find it fascinating to think that, you know, in a lot of ways, I wonder if Matt sees himself or a younger version of himself in, in some of these characters. Doesn't the character in this book kind of never settle? Mm-mm. He's oh. meant to settle in Oklahoma, but the novel was never finished. So we don't actually get to see that come to fruition. I, I wonder how much Matt feels that he's that person even now. Like, you, would, you would hope that he's felt, I mean, he's been with Pearl Jam since 98. That's 23 years mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, I, I would hope that he found this maybe 20 years ago and then wasn't sure if Pearl Jam would pan out. And that since then he's come to feel settled and the book is just a very um, poignant moment in his life. And just kind of like a, a, a beacon of what, something that got him through maybe a difficult part in his life. And so that he holds onto it nostalgically. Is that a word? Nostalgically? It, it, it could be. I mean, it, I just find it interesting that his favorite book is a novel that was never technically finished. And it's, well, that's probably I, I how he help. felt for a while. He, he, yeah. Soundgarden ends, he picks up this job where he has like, when he was brought on for what, 20 some odd shows or whatever it was. Hey, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to sit in for a few weeks. Well, I mean, and then eventually he became a full member. Well, look at this. Skinyard, Soundgarden, Bam Bam, Temple the Dog, Hater, Wellwater Conspiracy, Queens of the Stone Age, Pearl Jam. All those bands are on Matt Cameron's career timeline. What's his Oklahoma? Is it Pearl Jam? Yeah, <laughs> we can only hope, right? <laughs> we can only hope. All right, should we go to Jeff or Ed? Uh, your call on this one. Let's go with Jeff. We'll leave, we'll leave right. Ed as the final we'll pick go here. We'll with Jeff's, our Montana Jeff, man. Uh, man, this is one that I feel like a lot of people have read. I have not read this. Uh, I will honest, I'll be honest about that. Um, Mikhail Bugov's, Bu- Buyakov's uh, Master and Margarita. Um, I did uh, read some cliff notes to kind of brush up. Uh, I've heard, I know this is a, a classic, um, a kind of a trippy novel involving magic and love and censorship yeah. and those things. Um, now, considering some of the ways Jeff has written lyrics for Pearl Jam, this seems kind of on brand for me. 
like how complex and symbolic some of his songs are. Think about Low Light and Ghost. Nothing as it seems can be a little, there, there's some code in there. Mm-hmm. What, what do you make of this choice? So much of what Jeff does is code. Um, I mean, visually too. I mean, he's, he's in many ways the visual. Yeah, good call. You know what I mean? If you yeah. you look at his relationship to the visual components of all the albums that Pearl Jam puts together, whether it be No Code or Yield, or I mean, the, he very much is the visual inspiration in a lot of ways behind what we see with every album release. Um, and so I, I I think that what again I mean this is a satire this novel mm-hmm. this you know what I mean and so I, I think there's something about satire that really speaks to these guys because there's a cynicism I think that's mixed with an idealism. And, and I think that's that, that desire for a better world that drives these guys, each and every one of them. But there's also the ability to kind of maintain an element of cynicism and that outlook at the same time. And I think that shines in the songwriting as well. But if you look at a song like other side, I think there's something about the, the supernatural and the other, you know, the proverbial other side that really captivates Jeff. There's something about, Mm. you know, and I'd have to go back. I don't remember too much about his personal background on a religious level, but I think that there's a spiritual spirituality to Jeff that I think is a little bit more on the sleeve than it is with other members of the band. And what's what's fascinating about this book is that the the Soviet Union in this novel is officially it's it's atheistic, right? And so, when I say spirituality, I don't necessarily mean that it you know a specific denomination of religion. You know what I mean? I, yeah, it, yeah. Spirituality comes in many different forms, and when you look at a very prolific novel like this one, which has been translated and, and, and what have you. And, and you kind of think about some of the themes and especially the imagery about, you know, how good and, and evil interact. It, it's this constant dichotomy, good and evil, uh, you know, being a courage, you know, full of courage versus full of cowardice, uh, being guilty versus being innocent. It, it's this, this yin and yang. And, and I think that when you, when you think about Jeff's contributions to the band, the songs that he's written, whether it be a song like Nothing Man or a song like The Other Side, um, you not The Other Side, but Other Side. Uh, and we've talked about Jeff's best songs. And one of the things that you remarked when we were doing this, he said, God, this exercise is really hard. I didn't realize how many he has, you know, mm-hmm. what I mean? <laughs> just how many wonderful contributions he's made to the band. And it, it truly, he truly is this underrated wild card on a lot, a lot of levels for the casual Pearl Jam fan. Um, but there's so much symbolism in it. And I think that that, that is a reflection of the way he presents himself as an artist through visual. I think that he, he likes to show a visual and let that symbolically represent a bigger idea. So to me, I wasn't surprised that, his favorite novel will be one that relies heavily on symbolism and imagery. Well, and I think it's even beyond just uh, imagery. I I think, you know, I said code before and you agreed. I I think when he, when we talk about Ed, I'm sorry, we talk about Jeff's songs. uh, I mentioned a few of them, Ghost and Low Light, uh, nothing as it seems. Some of them, they get really Cody. It's, It's kind of hard to, peel away the layers to find out what raw emotion or story is Jeff trying to convey here. And so when we do his songs as lyric of the week, those are the hardest ones for me because he throws in weird turns of phrase that I've never heard before, or uses an word in a different way than I would normally hear it um, used. Um, And it's almost like he's hiding. He's hiding something. Um, and he wants you, basically he's asking if you can figure this code out, then you're worthy of knowing what I'm, what I really mean to say. And I think that kind of dovetails with this whole idea that the, the book survived. The book was passed underground for how many, like what, 30 years before it was finally published. Right. So the idea that survival of the, of the book itself was its own theme beyond what was written inside the, the book jackets. So think about Jeff from a from a professional point of view. He's been surviving 
all this time, you know, think of, especially the, the eighties into the early nineties, it was all about survival, you know, green river, just like stone green river into mother love bone into Pearl jam, you know, and then of course the survival Pearl jam, meaning that he takes away to survive the whole birth of no thing we spoke about before. So there's a, again, with, with, with Jeff layers, 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 layers. And it's not just what the book represents, what the book is about, but it's the code and the symbolism and the macro and the micro. And Jeff is one layer dude, man. He is a, um, he's probably one of the most interesting guys in the band beyond Ed is easy to say is the most, is the most interesting because we get most of the lyrics from him. So you can, you, you try to th- think that, you know, Ed, mm-hmm. but there's so many layers to him that you go, okay, he's obviously the most interesting, but I, I, I don't know. I think Jeff might be the most interesting because of things like this, these little nuggets, these little avatars of what he is about and who he is. It's wild. Completely agree. Well, that leads us to our faithful singer, Ed Jerome Vetter. And he has chosen a book of poems by James Baldwin, Jimmy's Blues and Other Poems. What, what, why? We, we've spoken about storytelling and, and poetry in his lyrics, and he's given us a book of poems. So what does that mean? So James Baldwin had a, a mentor, a friend. He has a great named, story by himself, James Baldwin. He, he does, yeah. yeah. But he, he had a, a mentor and a friend named Buford Delaney, who was a black neo-impressionist painter. And uh, Dave Lemming, who wrote, who was a lifelong friend of James Baldwin and, and actually wrote a biography on, on Baldwin, said that Buford Delaney taught Baldwin to react to life as an artist. That light and music for Baldwin became synonymous with Buford. So this idea that, that light and music are one and the same. Um, and I can't, you, you know, you, you listen to that final, the last lyric we've ever heard Eddie sing on Gigaton involves light mm-hmm. sure from river cross yeah and i i can't help but thinking i can't help but think pardon me when you look at this book which is essentially a a series of confessional sketches it is such a reflection of eddie's process in a lot of ways when you think of eddie vetter as an artist i always envision him as this manifestation of confessional sketches you look at a song like Alive, you look at the, the liner notes, you look at the, there's a website that will produce a set list in his handwriting. Mm. There's, some, there's something, it's like a confessional sketch. Every song, every set list is in many ways a confessional sketch. There, there's something uniquely um, instantaneous, momentary, and present. You know, we talk about a song like Present Tense. There's something present about everything that he produces. And I think that that's a prolific element in this particular book by James Baldwin. It clearly speaks to Eddie in a lot of ways. What I would like to do, and it would be a fun exercise, is to, to re- revisit that in a way that, that almost looking at it from the point of view of a Pearl Jam fan saying, what lines here may have influenced Eddie hmm. in terms of rhyme scheme, in terms of ideas, um, I have no doubt that we can find James Baldwin in Eddie's songwriting. Well, let me th- let me read you something. Then. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to test you right now. No man can have a harlot for a lover, nor stay in bed forever with a lie. He must rise up and face the morning sky and himself in the mirror of his lover's eye. Oh, I mean, you see that in so many of Eddie's songs. I mean, I read that and I go, Jesus, that's that 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 whole. That whole language. Yeah, you, you see Better in, Man there. You see yeah. Nothing Man there. Yeah. You, you see a lot of that happening in there. I mean, I can and see so Alone. I, I can see Hail Hail. I can see. Uh-huh. I mean, that that's and on top of that. There, there was something I was reading a forward, uh, a, a forward, the forward in the book. And one thing that kind of popped out to me was this line uh, written about James. He understood he needed to leave his America to be. What was Ed's America? Ed's America, his life, his setting, his environment was a really fucked up household. And with a dad that wasn't his dad and his real dad is not there. And he had to get away from that. And when his family moved back to Chicago from San Diego and he stayed, 
-hmm. he left his America to be. That's how he was going to be. And he was working shitty jobs, just trying to find his way through, through music in some capacity, surfing, writing, bad radio, you know, working for Joe (laughs) Strummer, the whole fucking thing. And then all of a sudden Jack Iron shows up, becomes buddies with him. And there you go. But like, that's, that's just a, 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 he picked the best possible book for himself because mm-hmm. I can see the through lines are just like, bing, 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 bing. Without question. So, I mean, I really loved this article and I would, I, it's territory. I want to mine on a much deeper level. So that I'm hoping this is just part one, actually, of what will eventually be a part two to this discussion, <laughs> because I feel like we're just scratching the surface. We of probably we are. Uh, we could literally do an individual episode on each one of these, I think. Uh, there's a Down few the more road. things I actually want to mention on on James Baldwin. That I, do so, please. I, I took a few notes here and I'm like, I got to mention this because it just it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Baldwin was dangerous to everybody who had anything to hide. Think about WMA. Right. Think about alive to a degree. Think about glorified G. Think mm-hmm. about them going down to, to Florida, right where that abortion doctor was murdered. Like they show up, voters for choice in DC. They show up writing a song like Can't Deny Me. Like they show up and they say, No, fuck you, man. You're not hiding from us. You know? Yeah. And that's that's kind of how he how, how he writes his journey and, and writes for Pearl Jam. And I think that's it's incredible. Also, anti-censorship. Baldwin preached honesty and pride and not hiding your true self. That's mm-hmm. something he's gotten better at doing over the years. Um, another quote here from, from the author of the foreword. His words fell on us like good rain or replenishing we badly needed. And I can't think of a better quote to sum up this whole section, this very long section, with those words attributed to our singer because... Sometimes when you're when you're in a, in a certain mood, what 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 do you need to kind of make you feel better? It's the words of Eddie Vedder. Yeah, great finish. Boom! There you go, gang. A little uh, cerebral book talk for you. Um, <laughs> but we're gonna keep it going with our lyric of the week. And that lyric of the week comes from Backspacer. It's Johnny Guitar. Okay, Paul, Johnny Guitar. What, we got the uh, the second verse here. What do you make of this? This is very interesting. So the song's about <clears throat> this young man who, uh, it was inspired by this album cover photo mm-hmm. from, uh, I think it was- Jimmy uh, Guitar, uh, Johnny Guitar Watson. Right, exactly. What's wrong with me? Right. And so it's, it, it, it's supposed to feel like an Elvis Costello style song. And- uh, you've got this, this moment where you have this made up story, right? It's completely fictional. Obviously as some of Ed's songs are, the guy can, can spin a yarn. You got this kid who falls in love with a girl on a record cover, which I think was very common for oh my God, anybody. Who, 60s, who, who, 80s, right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you buy an album. It's like, who, you know, for us in the nineties, it, what, what was it like Alicia Silverstone and all the Aerosmith videos? Oh, the mean, Aerosmith videos, exactly. Right. I mean, that Trilogy, was our, our generation's uh, album cover girl. Yeah. To a degree. Video, oh yeah. Um, you, that's a great point. The album right? cover girl of the seventies and sixties to became the video cover. Became girl. the video girl. Exactly. Tony Katane. Mm. Come on now. Hmm. All of our younger viewers are like, who? Right. <laughs> exactly. Who's Tony Katane? Look her up, kids. Yeah. But what I thought was really fascinating about this story was the disillusionment of it. Mm. And so when you, when you think about this verse here, the second verse, because we actually, I presented the first and second verse to you, and I think right. we were in agreement that the, the first was more poignant. So on the left, the girl in red, so innocent, never sheds her clothes, even when she goes to bed. Yeah, the type of girl responsible for original sin. Can't help but wonder where and who she is. It's this desire for what's beyond the surface that I thought was so fascinating Mm -hmm. about that line. Because I think that there's this, uh, 
simplicity in thinking of a kid looking at a girl on an album cover and thinking it's just this one note primal hormonal when in reality it's so much more dynamic and complex than that for many i think sometimes it's like well who is that girl like yes granted there's the whole physical you're teeing me up here man i can't wait well that exists (laughs) but at the same time there's also this desire to know like who it's the curiosity i mean we talked about uh the kafka not the kafka novel uh uh, yes the kafka novel um america pardon me we we, we talked about america Mm -hmm. and how the the narrator i'm sorry the protagonist of the book was trying to escape this scandal where he was like seduced by a housemate and so for him, that was, <laughs> it's this idea, but it wasn't just purely seduction. There was also an element of fear, of curiosity. I mean, there's all these extra things happening that don't really get acknowledged. Can't help but wonder where and who she is. Oh, and the memory's always getting clear. First 30 years and more, I've loved her so. Oof. But now I need to know why she's with him. This is such a, uh, it's a declaration of loneliness of um, desire. It's it. There, there's so much happening here in terms of somebody falling in love with this image of idealism and then holding on it's to a that great for 30 for years. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly realizing why is somebody like that with somebody like him? It, it, it's just that the lack of self-awareness is staggering. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, Anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I mean, you, you're, you're, I'm basically just continuing what you're saying. I mean, this reminds me of being a teenager and having those first lustful feelings for girls, right? So you, you fantasize about what it would be like to be with, with her. Or but, on but, the flip side, how many girls had, you know, pictures of Eddie Vedder or whoever sure, else. Sure, same thing. Locker, we're, we're using you know? him I mean, and her here because that's what yeah. the story is. But like, it's, it's completely flipped on, on the other side of the coin. Um, you, you think about, you fantasize about this girl but you really have no idea. Um, it's this dream that you have in your mind of what she must be like. But of course, that's often not the reality. But but the dream becomes the reality, right? It's sort of why they say, don't meet your heroes. <laughs> and I know these lyrics were, you know, we talked about Ed, you know, applying his own imagination to this um, album cover. But, you know, there's that one girl you grew up with or went to college with that maybe you sort of knew, but not really. And maybe she always dated your friend or some guy you knew and, didn't understand why she would go out with him. You're great. Like, surely she preferred to go out with you, right? But you never made the move. You sat there and you dreamt about it. And the other guy, even if he doesn't actually deserve her, made, he made the move. And it, it's confidence is a big deal, especially when you're younger. It hides a lot of personality and character flaws, even though it, <laughs> it itself can be a character flaw. So for the character in this song, this thought process has plagued him for decades. And that's a big word, decades. And you know, it's and it's pretty sad. You mentioned it. Um, and, you know, look at that third line. Can't help but wonder where and who she is. He prioritizes where she is over who she is by placement in the sentence. And that's how we know this person doesn't have their head totally screwed on right. He's concocted this backstory for her, a whole slew of personal personality traits and a history and surmises an obvious future if only she were with him but of course unfortunately that's not how it works pawning for someone for so long will only put you in an alternate reality and that's not healthy so what's the solution paul simply communication i i will uh, submit to you find the little bit of strength to say hi you might find out immediately your dream was way off base and it never worked out in the first place but the more you build her up in your mind, the more you're, you could be disappointed and take, you know, take her off the pedestal, speak to her like an equal. And maybe if you act like that with kindness, you'll actually find who she is, um, is even better than what you thought. So the idea of like this idealism and like, like just thinking about it and thinking about it, and it it's, it's going to wear you down when all you needed to do was take a deep breath and, and take her off the pedestal, take her off the album cover and just say hello and maybe you 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 avert 30 years of of pain that never would have been the case maybe you do but if we could if we could take more of a global view on this for a quick second okay so i'm no longer a teacher in the classroom i I work 
in a different sector and, and oh, I don't work. You're in a, a suit now. Sector, but, uh, you, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on the admin side now, but when I was in the classroom, I'll never forget. I worked with a kid. This is six or seven years ago. Was a, a young girl, a, a teenager, right mm-hmm. around, you know, the age of, uh, um, one of the characters that we just talked about and she was 13 at the time. And so she had the biggest crush on Leonardo DiCaprio, which I thought was fascinating because he must've been 40 at the time. He's 46 now. Mm -hmm. So he was probably 39 or 40 at the time. In my head, I was thinking, you know, why is she not into Justin Bieber or whoever it was that was the, the Mm -hmm. it boy at the time. And so she was really, really into, um, Leonardo DiCaprio. And what I thought was really interesting was eventually through just little casual conversations in the classroom, she would occasionally reference the film Titanic, which came out in 1998. Right. So here's this kid who sees a film and falls. I don't want to say in love is not the right phrase, but she she becomes infatuated with the idea Mm -hmm. of somebody even though that somebody is now like 20 something years older, it was just like holding on to this, this, this character, this idea, this concept. And since he's the closest um, articulation of that, even though he's probably 39 or 40, it didn't matter. You know what I mean? It was almost like when she said Leonardo DiCaprio, she meant Leonardo DiCaprio in 1998, not Leonardo DiCaprio age 40. And I, Here's the funny thing. I thought of myself because when I was her age, I had an infatuation with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe died in 1962, Jason. <laughs> and I was 13 years old and I read a Donald Soto biography on Marilyn Monroe, which was like 690 something pages long. What kind of 13 year old are you? A bizarre one, apparently. Yeah, uh, I'm the type of character that I think Matt Cameron would love to read. About. There you go. <laughs> but I think that what was fascinating to me about it was, as I've kind of reflected and, and learned more about myself, there was a, an, a vulnerability and an element of exploitation that I felt the need to protest. Like I, I've, there was a, an, a vulnerability and an innocence and a beauty about who she was as a person that when, when I saw the exploitation that she experienced and the lack of empathy and sympathy and just the, the, the sharks swimming in the water around her at all times, it, it almost in, it instilled in me this desire, even as a young adult male to want, and I wasn't an adult, but a young male to, to, to want to, um, do something about that. It, it, like there, there was an activist in yeah. me that was aroused. Yeah. And so um, I, I can't, and I think it actually informed in a lot of ways, my relationships going forward for a number of years, subconsciously without me even realizing it. So I think what's really fascinating about a song like Johnny guitar is that you can imagine how people can find themselves infatuated with an image or a character and then create an entire personal narrative and a connection, even if it's loose and ambiguous, that could ultimately play a role that as the narrative or that the speaker Johnny guitar shows us, it can predetermine your entire life. It's crazy. (laughs) It really is crazy. Well, we should listen to the best version of this in a live context. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Ready to stand up! I think we should go to the home of Eddie Vedder, to the home of Matt Cameron. We're going to San Diego, and we're going there in 2009. Specifically, October 9th, 2009. Uh, This one's about a kid who falls in love with a record cover. Or at least a girl on it. It could happen.
This one is interesting. You heard him say it. I, I added, it's actually the, the back end, the previous song, Amongst the Waves. Yeah. But he says, Ed does, this is about a kid who falls in love with a record cover or a girl on it. It could happen. Don't tell him it could happen, Ed. We just yeah. talked about why it's a bad idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, this this version is really good because, well, first of all, everything from San Diego is always good. Just something about mm-hmm. that part of the country that they always have a good time with, like Philadelphia, New York. There's always something yeah. good about San Diego. It's got a bit of an edge to it. Um, Ed is kind of on the cusp of losing his voice too, which is interesting because it's like song seven in the set list. Yeah, it's not, it's not late in the set list. But, but he's kind of getting a little raspy, which I actually think helps the narrative because it's the man 30 years later. It's the strain on the subject. It's, it's yeah. the, it actually kind of works. Yeah. And I love how it ends. Speaking my language here, Jason. <laughs> I love how this one ends because in the studio, of course it fades out. It's kind of kind of carries and carries and carries and fades out. This one just ends super abruptly. And you know what? Maybe that's the maybe that's the ending that America didn't get. Yeah. Whereas Johnny Guitar fading off into distance is like going to Oklahoma. Yeah. But here we're getting the finality of like, no, <laughs> you, <laughs> you stop doing that. You stop doing that. <laughs> so I thought it, I thought it was a really cool um, option to choose from uh, or to choose. And um, yeah, San Diego always a good time. Now, I just want to circle back as we bring closure to the episode here. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about um, those tapes that Stone listened to, mm-hmm. those four or five tapes. In a lot of ways, uh, I always think of Johnny Guitar when I think about those four or five tapes that weren't Why? compelling enough. I don't know. I just Because they weren't motivated in the right ways. Oh, Clearly. I see. I you know what I mean? And so I yep. thought this particular lyric, this song was appropriate for this particular show because we, we talked a lot about similar motifs and themes that I think mm-hmm. are, and, and you did a wonderful job connecting it to America. But if you just go back to that podcast interview where, where Stone was talking about the, the connections and the people that, that you think are the perfect person is one connection away. The speaker in Johnny Guitar probably lost the love of his life who was literally right there by him for how long because he was so blinded. Mm -hmm. He had a blind spot and he could not overcome that. And it was one connection away. So How many of us have experienced that in our life? Well, not experienced that in our life, I guess Mm -hmm. you should say. Something to ponder on uh, your journey to work (laughs) as you finish this podcast. Uh, we'll be with you next week with another uh, new show, of course. And uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, of course, as Paul said at the top of the show. And guys, we are just a week away. Well, I guess two weeks away, technically, from our big month of 10. So uh, come back with us next week. We'll talk about something that's not 10 related, but it'll be good, I assure you. Just like just like the sign says in the movie Clerks, I assure you it will be good. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time we got a lot of references in this episode you gotta have good references yeah. as my job uh, hunt will attest you gotta have good references <laughs> alright I'm enough I'm out of here until next time you've been listening to the state of love and trust <laughs>